We finished our book last week on Christ and the Prophets, but we needed one more Sunday school before Thanksgiving. So, if you remember our series on C.S. Lewis that we did a couple months ago, and you're thinking, I sure do wish we could get just one more of those, you're in the right place. And if you're thinking the opposite of that, the name you want to write down is Ruling Elder Travis Peacock. You have him to thank for this. So as you may remember, when we did that lesson, our son was in the NICU. It's been actually like a year, over a year ago. And um, so Travis had to fill in one of those Sundays, and I had a half-prepared lesson just sitting on my computer. So this is that lesson. So we will say if uh, I was able to make it to, to hold prepared or not. Uh, we will be talking today about church membership, as you see. Um, somewhat so on what it is, but mostly on, uh, very briefly, we'll cover whether or not it's biblical. We believe it is. You may be surprised to know. <clears throat> what benefits you might expect to receive from church membership and what it offers you that no other aspect of our society cannot. And so, of course, as I have said, we will be leaning heavily on Lewis for this. The two essays you may be interested to read uh, by Lewis that have played heavily into this are just called Membership. One of them is called Membership. And the other one is called On Priestesses in the Church. Remember, he was Anglican, so that's the aspect that he wrote it from. Um, there are se several long quotes from Lewis that I'm relying on simply because he can teach this better than I can. Um, so hopefully you'll be forgiving of that. But before we get into what Lewis has to say, let's do our Westminster Shorter Catechism, as is our custom. We are on question number 106. We are asking, what do we pray for in the sixth petition? And the divines answered in the sixth petition, which is, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, we pray that God would keep us from being tempted to sin or support and deliver us when we are tempted. So remembering that when we ask this, we are not simply asking that we would be freed from any temptation at any time ever, but rather that God would keep us from the evil that comes from that temptation, that the temptation would not have its grip on us, that uh, temptation actually can serve to bring us closer to Christ. And... Uh, in Romans, we're told that we need to know our hearts and to know our sin. I can't remember which sermon it is, but I, I think I actually mentioned John Piper's Romans series last week as well. Much later in his series, he gives a sermon about knowing your sin. And what he points out is, if you're mid-temptation and you give in to your sin halfway, you don't really know your sin. You don't know the power of it because you have not resisted it all the way. So the only way for us to know the full sin of our hearts is to resist temptation. And we are called mightily to that. And Christ tells us in the Lord's Prayer that we are to ask for that, that he might give it to us. We have not because we ask not. So let's read the question, and then we'll answer all together. Church, what do we pray for in the sixth petition? In the sixth petition, which is, And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, we pray that God would either keep us from being tempted to sin or support and deliver us when we are tempted. And following that example, let's pray before we get into our, our lesson. 
Father, we are grateful that we are able to come before you today. Please make this lesson fruitful. Open our hearts, give me right words to say, and help us to think rightly about church membership, to come to love church membership, to understand why it is special, why we are called to it, and how we might fulfill those duties in a way that honors Christ. So may this be fruitful and drawing us near to you, free from distraction, always looking to Christ. In his name we pray, amen. I'm not going to be reading this large chunk of scripture at the beginning. Hopefully it's one that uh, most of you are familiar with, 1 Corinthians 12, 12 through 31. But very briefly, this is the famous picture that Paul paints of each of us individually being members of one body. And this is, this is the passage where he says, you know, the foot, just because the foot doesn't do what the hand does, is still part of the body. Just because the ear doesn't see like the eye does, it's still part of the body. And so comparing individuals in the body to, as members, so to speak, or organs on your body, he mentions that not everyone will be doing the same activities, that even that there are some parts of the body that are worthy of greater modesty, and there are some parts of the body that are worthy of greater dignity and greater honor. He does not shy away from that fact. But at the same time, if one member of the body suffers and is injured, the whole body suffers. And if one member of the body is honored, all are honored. And so in this image, it's a very powerful reminder of what it is like to be a part of the church. And this is in large part what this entire lesson is resting on. So if you need to refresh yourself and glance through it, or after the lesson, if you need to glance through it and find what the scriptural foundation is, for what we're talking about today, this passage represents a significant portion of that. Let's start with a discussion question. Is church membership biblical? And obviously, I want you to defend your answer. Is church membership biblical? Got a yes? Good. So someone defend your yes against Pastor Dave's no. It is not. So we call that we call that good and necessary consequence, Victor.
Virgil. Yeah, you knew he was thinking it, right. Yeah, very good. Um, anyone else have any thoughts? Those are both very, very good. Are you satisfied, Pastor? Sure, he says. So, we do have a couple of commands. I think those are both great points, and they lead very nicely into the scriptures that we have laid out. Do not neglect the meeting together. Very simple. This is something that we see acted out. It is overtly commanded by the author of Hebrews here do not, to not neglect, them, not neglect the meeting together. In Hebrews 10.25, um, once again, we are called a body in Ephesians, so no one ever hated his own flesh but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church because we are members of his body. So what means does he use to nourish and, and cherish his church? Those are the elders and the deacons, which are called to care for the spiritual and the physical needs of the body. And importantly, and this is sort of the nail in the coffin in my mind, because if you really want to finagle your way out of church membership and just call it a loose gathering of believers, you seem to always be able to wiggle your way out of it by just saying, well, you know, we can meet together, but we don't need all of the formality associated with church membership. We have a command in Hebrews, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Who are your leaders? How can you submit to them if there is no formal structure? This, again, is elders and deacons. And that is a genuine question. How can you submit to your leaders and obey them if you have not offered your formal submission to them through church membership. And if this is something you're struggling with, then I think this is a question you really have to dwell on and consider. How am I submitting to my leaders? How am I subjecting myself to church discipline, which is not a curse, but a blessing? We see time and time again, well, at least once, overtly in 1 Corinthians and then in 2 Corinthians, how the intent of church discipline is not to get people out of the church, but rather to call them back. So it would do us good not to shy away from submitting ourselves to church discipline. And if that's not convincing, you have an outright command by the author of Hebrews. We're once again, I include this because I want to show that this is something that is true even back as far as the Old Testament. The background to this passage in Samuel is that David and his soldiers are doing one of their military conquests or another. And at one point, many of the men who are with him get very tired. And so 200 of them go on to battle and the rest stay back with the baggage. And they make their conquest and they, you know, they, they, um, they get all of their, uh, I'm blanking on a word, sorry. Their reward for battle, so to speak. They get all of the stuff that they conquered. What's the word? Spoils, there you go. They get all their spoils from battle. And they come back and they're like, well, y'all didn't go into battle. And so why should you get any of these spoils? And here's what David has to say. 
For as his share is who goes down into the battle, so shall his share be who stays by the baggage. They shall share alike. And most importantly, and he made it a statute and a rule for Israel from that day forward to this day. And so the members in the church, as I mentioned before, are different in responsibilities, are different in duties, are different in dignity, are different in honor, and yet they receive the spoils nonetheless. And how can we prove this? It doesn't matter how dignified, how honored you are in our church, it is not you who attain the spoils. It is Christ. So this is good for us to remember. Church members are afforded benefits. This is from the BCO. So chapter 6 hits that very strongly. Chapter 6 of your BCO, if you uh, want to pull that off the shelf and review it. Um, what members are we afforded, or what benefits are we afforded? Baptism and shepherding of the children of those who are members. So keep in mind that when you become a member of the church and you have a child, regardless of whether or not your child is baptized, they are a non-communing member of our church. And they receive the benefits of the opportunity to get baptized, which we encourage, by the way. And they receive shepherding, free of charge, from the elders and deacons of the church. And hopefully, all the uh, other members of the church as well. You get to partake in the Lord's Supper if you are a member in good standing, which is a blessing. It is a real blessing to partake of the Lord's flesh and his blood, to receive that into your body, to be nourished by the manna from heaven, to be washed by the blood, to drink the cup of joy and not the cup of wrath as Christ did for you is a real blessing, and to be reminded of all of those things that Christ did for you. And you yourself, in addition to the shepherding of your children, for those who have children, you receive care, instruction, and discipline. You receive the preaching of the word. You come to worship together. You get the prayer of the saints. You get to encourage one another. That's why in Hebrews, we are not to neglect to meet together that we may encourage and uplift one another. And if you don't see these as benefits, I'd encourage you to think a little bit more on them because these benefits are great. You are cared for by people, in many cases, whose vocation is to do that. People who have been called by this very church because of the gifts that God has given them to do that. And so there is great power in that, and we are to care for one another. So this is the scriptural background, the Presbyterian, the BCO background. This is what we have as far as that goes. So now we're kind of entering into C.S. Lewis territory. He starts with a, co a quote by William Temple, who is, was one of the archbishops in the Anglican Church, who said, religion is what you do with your solitude. And he contrasts that with John Wesley. The Bible knows nothing of a solitary religion. So the discussion question is, which one of these quotes is right? Does religion belong to your private life? Got a no from Pastor Dave. Anyone want to speak in, in favor or against? In favor of John Wesley? All right. We got one Wesleyan in the crowd. <laughs> okay, let's hear it. 
Okay, good. Yeah, so you're taking the stance of uh, don't be the one who holds your hand up and drops the coins into the offering plate. It's, yeah, it's what you do when... So there is truth in that, yep. Maybe the question should be, does religion belong merely to your private life? No. No, we all agree. Anyone, any other thoughts? I thought I saw him. Yeah, go into the, yeah, so it says go into the closet and pray. So there are elements that are correct about it, and yet, Victor? Good. So, yeah, so we are not to do things for outward vanity, and I think that's what is tripping us up a little bit, and that's okay. I'll take the blame for the poorly worded question. We are not supposed to do things. Our religious life is not for outward vanity, and yet we cannot survive in solitude. So we are to go into the closet to pray, and yet I believe it was Daniel who, did I have that right? was forbidden to pray publicly, and so he swings the windows open and prays into the town every single day. And so he did not do it for vanity, but because he was dedicated to his Lord. Lewis says, when the modern world says to us aloud, you may be religious when you are alone, it adds under its breath, and I will see to it that you are never alone. How true is that for us today with the access that we have through the internet? social media, et cetera, et cetera. So we have to admit in some ways that we live a modern life of collectivism. And I'm not talking, you know, we're not a communist country or a socialist country, or at least not completely. And what Lewis means by this is individuals in modern society are often considered to be relatively interchangeable. You don't need one specific person to do a job, you just need someone to do the job. People, whenever they go into public school, are largely trained all in the same way. We are training, the public schooling trains children up according to one set model, and they are all treated alike, and then you go off and do your jobs. So there are elements where no regard is given to the individual, but only you need a person to fill a spot. There are elements of that in our modern life. I think we find, especially in America, that we fight against that very strongly, and especially now we are fighting against it, uh, this collectivist ideal, by really striving to assert our individualism, to claim, get a claim of who we are, to especially assert out into the world what our identity is. And so Lewis finds that membership in the church is something that is the true way to fight against the collectivism of society and even our own desire to push our individualism. 
The membership of Christianity offers something higher than both collectivism and mere individualism. So let's examine what Paul means when he uses the word member. Typically, when we say that we're a member of a club, a member of a society, what have you, what we mean is that we are one person among other same people in that club, society, etc. One member in a homogenous class, in other words. All are expected to be the same for all practical intents and purposes. But what you see in that passage that we started out with in 1 Corinthians is very clearly not that. Paul is using it in a way that's more akin to organs or unique components of a body that do different but very necessary functions. And so when we call someone a member of a church, because of the way that we use member in our typical parlance, we don't often use the word member in the way that Paul is using it. And we don't often think about it in that manner. So what is a, a way that we can find true membership very readily in our society? Lewis points to the family. A mother, a father, a daughter, a son, a grandfather, a granddaughter, all doing different things, all playing different roles in a family, and yet being unified all as one. Lewis even calls out the cat and the dog all different, all having different roles, and yet being inseparable parts of the family. If you lost any one of those, then you would feel in some manner that your family had been broken. Just look to the way that we engage with each of these members of society, or of the family in our culture. So going to grandma and grandpa's house is a treat for a child. We know it's different than just going to any stranger's house. We know it's even different from being with mom and dad. Grandma and Grandpa, it's a treat to go there. We love to go to Grandma and Grandpa's house. Think about the mom who says, wait till your father gets home. Different roles, right? Different expectations. And so you see how all are unique. Lewis has this great point. A convict or a prisoner, a convict has a number instead of a name. That is the collective idea carried to its extreme. But a man is in his own house may also lose his name because he is simply called father. That is membership in a body. The loss of the name in both cases reminds us that there are two opposite ways of departing from isolation. And you can highlight this by thinking, what if, for those of you who have children, what if you call, or your child called you by your given name? How strange would that feel? How off-putting would that feel? And the reason for that is because you are actually, by being called by your name, by your child, being put back into the collective. You're just another peer in society. You're just another co-member of the, yes, of the country. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, <clears throat> a couple things come to mind. I would take my best shot at it since you're <laughs> swinging. You're, you usually do this to Travis, but not to me. So, 
Um, so first, we are, bound, we are still bound by something, which is the scriptures. And so we conform ourselves to that, and we'll get to that, how that confirmation plays a role with our individual personalities. And so we are bound by that. And so one mistake that you might make is, well, if we all are we all have priesthood, then we can just interpret the scriptures in the way that we see fit, which is most certainly not true. Um, he talked, Lewis talks a little bit about this later, and so um, briefly, the way that that would interact would be remembering our original sin. So being the priesthood of all believers does not take that doctrine away, and so we rely on one another and our own unique propensities to actually correct the faults that each of us may um, be vulnerable to. And the second thing that comes to mind is that the, though we do carry that characteristic in common, just as all the organs in the body are made of cells, we still do different functions outside of that activity. And so the, priest, the priesthood of the believer, may, that doctrine may actually facilitate all of the other things that, that stem out from that. So by examining the scriptures and studying them, we can learn how to, uh, you can learn how to preach and exhort the church to the glory of God. And I can learn how to go to work and provide for my family to the glory of God. And my wife is, can learn how to uh, tend to the home and change a diaper to the glory of God. And we can all do these things which are necessary in life all different roles, uh, and yet dependent on our ability to receive scripture. Does that answer your question? Kind of. Victor. Uh-huh. Very good. So we are all doing our separate duties as a ministry, 
of Christ in a way. Is that a fair summary? Not of what you said, perhaps, but what, have I, what I was getting at. Josh. All very good. Great question. Please see me afterward, please. <clears throat> so remember, we are, we are members of Christ. We are members of the body. <clears throat> entry into the church is not entry into a collective, but rather entry into a body. Um, Lewis points out that we are members all with Christ and of Christ, and yet we could not be more different from him. And... He goes on to say, after noticing that, how different we are compared with Christ, it seems almost trivial to, to race further down into the diversity of operations. So by that, he means the elders, deacons, the uh, communing and non-communing members, the leadership of husbands and toward wives, the leadership of parents towards children. All of these things, he says, seem almost trivial when we compare ourselves, each of us, as members to Christ, who is the first fruits. And he is the first child, the first son, and yet we are siblings along with him. We are members along with him. 
And so the question, we'll skip the discussion question, but the question that often comes up that is most obvious and most contentious in our culture is this question of the difference between men and women in the church, particularly men and women, or women serving as pastors, as elders, as deacons. And a comment that you often hear is, women are so good at this. Women are made for offering comfort. Women are made for offering encouragement, for seeing to the more sensitive needs of the church. And Lewis says, the more they speak about the competence of women, the more we feel that the central thing is being forgotten. To us, a pastor is primarily a representative. So Lewis says, no problem. Women are, tend to be great at those things, in fact, fantastic. And yet what we are looking for in a pastor is a representative of God to the people. So the matter, he says, becomes most evident when you concern yourself not with the gender of the pastor, but with the gender of God which is given to us in the scriptures. God tells us how to refer to him as a he or as a him. So think how much, how different the religion would be if we were praying to she, God the mother, if Christ was a woman who came down. How different of a religion would that be? Not the same religion. You know this intrinsically. Children know exactly what it means to go ask their father for something versus what it means to go ask their mother. If, my, if uh, your children are anything like mine, when my son is hurt and falls down, he doesn't run to me. He goes to his mom. When my son wants to show me something cool, he comes and grabs my hand. And so we know, we have this intrinsic sense that it is different. Yes, very much so, I think. God is very much masculine towards us. And you're right, it completely changes things to... Very much so. Yeah. Very much so. And we have seen that to catastrophic end. Yeah, so androgyny is not the norm. Interchangeability is not the norm. It is not God's creation intent. And so sex in this way or gender teaches us of God's own character. And marriage, so the unity of the sexes, marriage teaches us of Christ's relationship with us, with his church. And Lewis says this is, you will find this very relevant, I think, to our culture. 
Lewis, we have no authority to take the living and seminal figures which God has painted on the canvas of our nature, that's our sex, and shift them about as if they were mere geometrical figures. This is what common sense will call mystical. Exactly. The church claims to be the bearer of revelation. If that claim is false, then we want not to make priestesses, but to abolish priests. I found that very helpful to think. Um, he cites the old mantra in the military. Uh, when we consider that men, the argument, men make imperfect priests, he calls them elders, we can say. True, men do make imperfect elders, but we salute the uniform, not the wear, he says. We, see, we salute the office, not the officer. And, la and he ends this argument by quoting Pride and Prejudice, where one character is talking about balls, as in dances, and he says, I should like, or she says, I should like balls infinitely better if they were carried on in a different manner. It would surely be much more rational if conversation instead of dancing made the order of the day. And her brother replies, much more rational, I dare say, but it would not be near so much like a ball. And his point is, perhaps according to our culture, it would be much more rational if, if we invited women to be pastors in the church, which we are seeing done. Perhaps it would be more rational according to the culture, but much less like a church, much less like what God has called us to. Briefly, if the church is one of such variety, of such different hierarchies, of tiers, of different roles, why do we chase equality in society at large? Again, a large quote. There are two opposite reasons for being a Democrat. You may think all men so good that they deserve a share in the government of the commonwealth, and so wise that the commonwealth needs their advice. That is, in my opinion, the false romantic doctrine of democracy. On the other hand, you may believe fallen men to be so wicked that not one of them can be trusted with any irresponsible power over his fellows. I do not believe that God created an egalitarian world. If we had not fallen, patriarchal monarchy would be the sole lawful government. So his point here is uh, we do not chase egalitarianism in our society because it is an ideal, but rather, as I alluded to earlier, because it is an attempt to cover the fallen nature of humanity, to protect one another from that. It is a stopgap. He relates it to the giving of clothing immediately after the fall. And he says it's not the way that we were created, and yet it may be a necessary stopgap. He calls it a bandage, not a cure, medicine, not food. And yet we cannot reverse the fall by getting rid of this egalitarianism. This is Lewis's idea. He says, this is an interesting quote, you'll have to explore it on your own. The nudist and the fascist make the same mistake. The one who tries to reverse the, the aspects of the fall by getting rid of the clothes and by getting rid of egalitarianism make the same mistake by thinking that they can go back to this utopia that God pushed us out of. Well, we pushed ourselves out of. Excuse me. <clears throat> Again, we're skipping this. Are, are all men created equal? And if so, in what way? That's one thing for you to consider. Um, Lewis says, it's very clear that not all men are made equally good. Men as in people, equally good equally beautiful, equally talented. It's clear that that's not the case. He also says, quote, God did not die for man because of some value he perceived in him, 
To have died for valuable men would not have been divine, but merely heroic. But God died for sinners. God died for sinners. And so in Christ, in this membership, what we have is not this ongoing argument of, I am as good as you are. We are equal. We are the same. We are of the same value, of the same dignity, of the same honor. But rather, uh, G.K. Chesterton says, in the church we become taller when we bow. The first shall be last, and the last shall be first. So Christian membership escapes collectivism, not by individualism, but by giving you your place, your foreordained, predestined place in the body of Christ. So with that in mind, with this emphasis on individualism and our personalities, our unique personality in, in our society, starting with our own intrinsic personality is not the right place to start, but rather knowing that our personalities, our unique creation is made whole only when it is conformed to the nature and the mind of Christ. Lewis again, you'll forgive me for all these quotes, I hope. Lewis, as a color first reveals its true quality when placed by an excellent artist in its pre-elected spot between certain others. As a spice reveals its true flavor when inserted just where and when a good cook wishes among the other ingredients. As the dog becomes really doggy only when he has taken his place in the household of man, so we shall then first be true persons when we have suffered ourselves to be fitted into our places. We are marble waiting to be shaped. It is, I think, a gross exaggeration to picture the saving of a soul as being normally at all like the development from seed to flower. The very words, repentance, regeneration, the new man, suggest something very different. It is God who molds us. It is God who shapes us. It is God who cuts off and prunes that which needs to be cut off and pruned. And it is God who places us just where we need to be exactly in the spot in time and location where we are to serve the role that we are called to. And if that does not encourage and empower you to do exactly what it is in the place where you're at right now, according to the gifts that God has given you, I beg you to think on that some more, to think on it for hours and days. Because this is where our true place as individuals becoming members of the body of Christ is found. This is how God assigns to us value. We are not intrinsically of infinite worth, but we are made in the image of God, and he has foreordained for us a place to be. So true value then is not intrinsic to us as people, but rather we receive it from Christ, from our role in the body. And so each of us has a place. Preaching, teaching, cleaning up, preparing meals, inviting people over to our home, praying for people, preaching on the side of the road, offering rides to people, caring for sick ones, changing diapers, cleaning up the kitchen. It is all the place that God has inserted us into. And in the church, we find our unity and we come together most powerfully as members along with one another so that uh, rather than striving in isolation because of some idea of individualism, we strive all together towards a greater purpose, and that is the glory of Christ.
Any questions or last thoughts? Very good, thank you. That's great. So, wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, love your wives. All of you submit to Christ. All of us submit to Christ. Let's pray. <clears throat> God, we are grateful for church membership, that we can come together knowing that we are all united towards a greater purpose, that you have assigned to us roles outlined often in your scriptures, cause us to submit to your scriptures, to love one another, to outdo one another in showing honor. And now as we move into worship, still our hearts and our minds keep distraction away from us and cause us to look to Christ, to hear the word, to sing, to pray all together as one and to glorify Christ in all that we do. In his name we pray, amen. <clears throat>